Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 27th, 2015, and my guest is Michael Matheson Miller. He is a research fellow at the Acton Institute and the director, producer, and co-author of the script for the documentary Poverty, Inc. That's Inc. as in Incorporated. Michael, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. Good to be with you. So Poverty, Inc., uh, your documentary, argues that fighting poverty is big business and that vested interests interfere with what we might hope would be better results. So what's the big business part of the anti-poverty world? You don't really think of it as a business issue. Right. Well, I mean, the basic uh, gist of the film is that poverty, despite, despite really good intentions of most of the people who are involved, poverty has become an industry in the fact that all the incentives or mo- many of the incentives of humanitarian charity – whether it's foreign aid or non-government organizations, are, you know, are in, are there, the incentives are in such a way that the people who actually benefit the most from it are not the people we're trying to help, but actually the people who work in the industry. Now, I will say that our critique is not really to go to the motivations of those people. I mean, we assume benevolent intentions. Um, it's really to kind of critique the underlying assumptions, beliefs, and institutions of the kind of dominant model of development that has, that has developed over the last, say, 50 to 70 years. Well, since, let's say since, since the end of World War II. And so since the end of World War II, you have this kind of dominant idea, kind of humanitarianism, that if we could just transfer large sums of money or do projects into the developing world, we could jumpstart the process to industrialism and, uh, and, and, you know, end poverty. And, um, you know, really hasn't worked and in some times has actually made things worse. And so that's, the, that's what we say that it really, that what's happened is an industry. And I guess the last part of that is that like any other industry, um, it has incentives to stay in business. And so it ends up doing things that actually, I think, perpetuate poverty instead of um, alleviating it or better yet, instead of helping to create the conditions for people to create prosperity in their own families and their own communities, and then they don't really need the poverty industry. So as, as listeners know, I'm sympathetic to that critique. Uh, people who uh, would disagree with it would argue that we haven't, we haven't either, either we haven't spent enough money or we haven't done the right things with the money. And we, of course, need to try because the alternative is to give up. And I think there is a temptation to use the reality that we've been very ineffective, or at least for the most part, ineffective in helping people far away who are very poor, that that tends to lead to people to say, well, I don't have to do anything because it's a waste of time and money. Um, do you agree with, with, that, uh, with that conclusion? No. no. Well, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think that, I think, you know, sometimes it's a waste of time and money, right? But just because it's sometimes a waste of time and money doesn't mean it always is, or that we're not supposed to care and one of the things that I think we're really clear about, I hope in the film, but especially in questions you know, afterwards, is we're not suggesting in the film like, oh, don't care, stop caring, but, but to really rethink the deeper assumptions. So there's kind of two questions here. One is, well, you know, we're not doing enough. Well, 
you know, this has been pretty much the argument for 70 years. I mean, whether it's, uh, you know, so you start out with the Marshall Plan, et cetera, and you're moving this idea that we need more money to solve the problem, right? And this is the kind of dominant social engineering approach at the time. Uh, but still, you have, say, the one campaign, which was um, Bono and a lot of other celebrities saying, you know, we need more money. We need to support the Millennium Development Goals, now the new Sustainable Development Goals. We need to increase foreign aid. Um, but really, there hasn't been that much evidence that increased foreign aid helps. I mean, this goes back. I mean, you've had Angus Deaton on your show. He, he talked a little bit about this, I think, in his, his book uh, and often quoting, really referring back to Peter Bauer, who's saying that, you know, one of the problems of foreign aid is that no matter how much money we give them, if there's not the capacity to absorb that aid and, and use it right, it ends up actually creating crony capitalism. It, it, it excludes poor people, et cetera. So, so the, the money question is one. The other question I think is, is a diff, difficult one. And it's, it's really a question of kind of, especially difficult in, in contemporary life. And that's like, okay, people like, so we'll do this film, you know, or I'll talk about this and people say, okay, well, you care about you know, private property rights for poor people and everything. And, and just as you talked about justice and the ability to register a business, which I hope we'll talk about. Um, and that's great, but I care about helping people right now. I mean, and, right. and that's what we need to do. Suffering. Yeah. And I think in one sense, that's, that's fair. The, the problem is that we've used the emergency model as the model for economic development for 50 plus years. And the second part, part of the problem is that not every moment in those 50 to 70 years in the developing world has been this tragic emergency need. And so what's happening is somehow it's a little bit of a sentimental argument that doesn't really go down to the deeper questions. And, and the deeper question, as I'll probably say more than once, is not what can I do to help? Now, of course, I think you, we should absolutely be concerned with that. But I think there's even a better question. And the better question is, what do people in poverty need to create prosperity for their own families and for their own communities. And then how can I go alongside them to partner with them to help do that? And I think there's a lot of people who are actually moving in that direction. So I think there's a lot of positive, positive uh, developments. But I think generally speaking, the way that the dominant model of development, uh, what we call in the film, the kind of the social fact of development, all these attitudes and assumptions and beliefs, have not really asked that question. David, the, the, the kind of underlying philosophical line, if you will, of the film is that we have tended to treat poor people like objects, right? Objects of our charity, objects of our pity, objects of our compassion, instead of as the subjects and protagonists of their own story of development. And this gets mixed up with this kind of social engineering um, idea. And so we really oftentimes use the developing world as an experiment for us to try out new policies and new theories. And, and I think, you know, we don't ask the deeper question. And, and again, this is a very complex question. I, I think, you know, you, your listeners know, I've heard different interviews with people. I mean, poverty is very complex. There's no single solution. There's no silver bullet. Um, but that, what is it that poor people need? Well, we often are focused so much on poverty alleviation, we forget to ask, well, what are these kind of institutions or conditions that help create wealth. And once you have that, then, then you don't need foreign aid. Yeah. It's, um, goes back. I think this, that inside of yours goes back to a point I saw Angus Deaton make. I don't think he made it on my program. I'm not sure, but I saw it elsewhere for sure. Where he says, basically, why are we always doing things to people? Um, 
not with them or for them, and why right. do they don't get a, why don't they get a say? Of course, one answer would be that it's hard to find out what they want to say. They don't have a voice. Um, they don't have a mechanism for making uh, themselves heard. And I think one of the things your film does that's uh, quite moving, and it's it's a fabulous film, by the way. I encourage uh, people to see it at the end of this conversation. We're going to talk about how that's possible, I hope. Uh, but it's um, there are many, many places where I was moved, and I, I confess there were parts where I cried, which uh, could have been just been the mood I was in that day, but it's it's very moving. Um, so one of the things that comes through very clearly is the frustration of people on the ground living, the actual people, not not their spokespeople, not their leaders, not their politicians, talking about, we just want to try to get on with our lives and we should get out of the way. And right. it's horrifying to think that sometimes our good intentions actually get in the way. So. Let's turn to one of those that you, you open with near the beginning. You know, can I say something real quick? Come yeah. Go fast. And I think the two two things. One, first of all, thanks for your kind words. That's encouraging. Um, it, it was hard, so I appreciate yeah, I it. Was. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but you know that was one of our goals is really to, in one sense, there, there. You know, we've known this. This is not brand new, but. Um, the channels of communication aren't really dominated by, you know, entrepreneurs or, or small business people in the developing world. And so we really wanted to give a voice to that. And the other thing in, and we can maybe talk about this later, is even in the way we filmed it, and, and you may have noticed this, we were really trying to represent the way people think about poor people. So I talked about that objectification. You know, usually when you save a poor person, they're really kind of far away, they're poor, they're dirty, you can't kind of relate to them. And even the way that the cinematography is done, uh, does that, and we tried to actually change that and do this that that to represent and give that voice. And the other thing I'd like to say, maybe early on, just in case I forget, is that um, you know we'll probably talk about foreign aid because foreign aid is the biggest thing, right? But really, the film and and this goes to our I think my, you know my colleagues and I our deeper understanding is that foreign aid is really not foreign aid is not the problem as much as a symptom. It is the cornerstone, the biggest symptom of a broken model of development that goes back to what you were just saying, you know, that we're, we're, as Angus Deaton says, you know, we're doing things to people instead of giving them a say. Yeah, for sure. So let's turn to one of the examples that you talk about early in the film, which is uh, food aid, which seems like a great thing. People are often, the worst aspect of poverty is one of them is, is hunger or worse, starvation. And so what's wrong with giving people food? We've done, America in the West has done a lot of that. What's wrong with that? Well, there's a couple of things that, that we talk about in the film. So the first thing is when there's an emergency, when there's, it's a crisis and people really need food, uh, then it's a good thing to help. Um, and we're very clear about that. And the people like Magat Wade and other people in the film make this point. So, um, so that's, that's not what's really at stake. What's at stake is the, the larger way that it's done. And so say we, we end up, there's a couple of things that happen with food aid. Um, so one is we tend to subsidize our own agriculture in Europe and the United States. Uh, we then put tariffs on to protect um, our markets. Um, we actually, on purpose, in the, in the film, there's an American farmer named Joel Salatin um, who wrote a book called Everything I Want to Do is Illegal. And uh, he, he actually makes the case that really a lot of these protections, so-called protections of American farmers, aren't really protecting the average American farmer. They're protecting you know, certain special interests. But, but anyway, so, so we... We do that, then we, we ship the food over as foreign aid, and this is a good thing. We need to help people. Or we, you know, or what we often do in the case of Haiti that we talk about is we, we sell subsidized agriculture at low tariffs and we dump it into the markets. And in doing that, we can actually undermine and destroy 
the local markets. So what happens is, is we protect our own agriculture and we destroy the development of other agriculture. And then if you look at what happens, it becomes connected to crony capitalism. So the Guardian newspaper reported that out of $1 billion in American food aid, about 70% of that went to three companies. So somebody's getting very wealthy on, on aid, but it's not the local farmers. And I think a better way of approaching that is, okay, we've got an emergency. It's you know two weeks, a month, however. Right? And then, all right, now can we start sourcing from local farmers? And what you actually ended up doing is driving people out of the agricultural business. Uh, two of the commentators in our film mention that as Haitians were driven out of agriculture, they ended up moving from the country into the city, causing lots of you know, uh, congestion, but also creating a lot of problems when the earthquake came as well. So um, it's not so much that food aid is bad in itself, but that the way it's been done, I think one of the men summarizes in the film quite well. He says, you know, the earthquake happened three years ago and they're still giving away free rice. It's not an emergency anymore. Yeah, that's what's fascinating. And I, I want to, I don't want to miss this quote, um, but I'm going to come back to the food issues. So the quote that I, I'm not going to get it verbatim from the film, but it's the idea is the same. So sort of a warning that after the earthquake, that one of the biggest threats is going to be from the NGOs, the yes. non-governmental organizations who are going to stick around. You'd think that would be a big plus. What's going on there? Why are they not good for the people on the ground? And you show you have a great little montage where you show all the – typically we're looking at the sides of, of, of SUVs and, and cars and vehicles that are emblazoned with the logos of these NGOs to show that they're there and they all have nice names. And aren't they helping? That's, that's a real um, interesting kind of problem in the developing world this way. So Haiti is called oftentimes by Haitians, the Republic of NGOs. And, and they're making this point that, you know, it, it's not really run by the government or the people of Haiti. It's really it's run by the NGOs. Now, obviously, that's hyperbole, but, but still it addresses something. Some people say there's about 10, up to 10,000 NGOs in Haiti. Others say it's three, and there's some debates in the numbers. But, but uh, per capita, one of the highest places in the world. And, you know, as the guys in the film say, the NGOs, some NGOs do some good. Um, but a lot of what happens is NGOs end up, it's similar to foreign aid, they end up crowding out local businesses. And so one of the stories we tell in, in the film is um, a, a solar panel company called Inersa. And um, these guys hire people from really some of the poorest places in the world. Um, there's one of, the, one of the kind of neighborhoods outside of Port-au-Prince or in, within Port-au-Prince, I should say, is called um, City Soleil. And at one point, it was ranked by the United Nations the most dangerous place on the planet. And um, these in the neighboring kind of little neighborhoods, these guys at Inersa, uh, the solar panel company, are hiring these guys to come work. And so they were building up the company and doing a lot of interesting things. And so they give an example of an NGO who helped them. There are a couple of NGOs and finance companies, uh, even one who had been microfinance, who moved into this kind of mid-level financing, who helped them. So there's definitely positive things of NGOs. Um, but at the same time, after the, so before the earthquake, they were selling about 50 streetlights a month. They make these solar-paneled streetlights. And then you have a little plug so you can charge your, your mobile device or whatever right there. Um, and they're really made, I mean, it's pretty interesting how they do it. I mean, they have to make the whole thing so that every, nothing can be stolen, right? So it's, it's a very interesting uh, uh, system they have. Um, so they're selling about 50 streetlights a month. And after the earthquake, 
they sold, I think they said five streetlights in six months. And even though the demand went up, right? So here's basic economics, right? There's an earthquake, the demand goes high uh, for, for solar panels because electricity is out and the local solar panel company actually loses money. Well, why? Because NGOs came and many NGOs get government money, uh, we, we can talk about, but NGOs came in and they started, quote unquote, giving the stuff away for free and they actually crowd out local business. And I asked, I said, so, you know, well, the one guy says, you know, what do you expect businesses to do? I said, well, did you talk to those people? He goes, yeah, we met them many times, right? And this is really part of the poverty industry, right? That NGOs oftentimes and social entrepreneurs and foreign aid, were, like we're thinking about how we're reporting, right? And this is a little complex, so I don't want to go too much into it, but I mean, it's complex it is for, for a radio or a conversation in an hour, but, but uh, complex in that, that we, we, when we talk about social impact, so let's say, you know, we're delivering shoes or blankets or whatever it might be. We only tell us like, well, how many blankets I delivered, how many shoes I delivered, how many people got them, what, what was my cost, what was my return on investment if it's a social entrepreneurship, et cetera. But we don't really look at the social impact. Like, did we actually put other people out of business? Now, if we're in a free kind of competitive business relationship where different firms are competing, I don't care if your business puts my business out of, I mean, puts me out of business if you're providing a better service at a lower cost. That's great. But that's not what's actually happening. What's actually happening is with the benevolent intention to go help poor people, we're actually destroying companies. And when we destroy companies, we're not just destroying one or two entrepreneurs who could start another one. We're also disemploying, if that's a word, um, all those men, those fathers from very poor uh, areas who don't really have that many other opportunities. And, and this is where there's some hostility there to, to the NGOs. And one other thing I'll tell you, I talked to, um, to this is not in the film, but Herman Chinri Hesse, who's a Ghanaian entrepreneur who shows up in the film quite a bit, um, he explained it to me this way too, that the other problem with NGOs is that you'll have this kind of pressure from you know, United Nations, World Bank, USAID, et cetera. Um, and it's pressuring down these policies or these kind of social changes. And then at the bottom, you have quote unquote grassroots NGOs who are pressuring from the bottom. So from the top and the bottom, you know, these African governments are being, being uh, pressured. But of course, the money is being funded from the World Bank and the IMF to these so-called grassroots organizations. It's a lot more astroturf than it is grassroots. And so there is a frustration with NGOs that despite their benevolent language, uh, if you look at what they do, they actually end up harming people more than, than helping them. So there's two issues here. One of it, which is normally free stuff is good. Uh, if somebody says to me, uh, here's something either cheap or free, uh, I'm happy to take it and take the money I would have spent elsewhere and spend it on something else. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's usually a nice thing. And when we get rid of tariffs, uh, our prices go down and we right. say that frees up resources to do things more effectively, to have expansion of opportunities. And I always argue that the tariffs uh, don't create or hurt jobs. They change the kind of jobs we have. Right. So that's in America. And I've talked about this. It's been a long time since we brought this issue up. So I'm, I'm glad to be talking about it again. Long time listeners with good memories will remember these conversations from a few years back. But normally you say, well, if, if you're going to be giving me rice, as in if, if you're going to give the Haiti rice, then Haiti doesn't have to grow rice anymore. Just like right. when we import more cars from Japan, we don't have to 
make as many cars here and that frees up people and resources to make other things. And similarly, if you're going to give me solar panels, uh, right. then I can take all those those men you were talking about. I assume it's mostly men uh, in those solar pa- panel factories and, and they'll go make something else. I guess it seems to me that in maybe in some situations, Haiti being one, there isn't something else. It's not a very dynamic labor market and not yeah. a dynamic capital market. When you find something that actually works, you have to hold on to it very closely. Is that accurate? Well, you, I mean, I think that's a really good point to make because there's a couple of things that are that are somewhat paradoxical in the film, right? Like, I agree with you on the lower tariffs and the free stuff. I think you're you're right. So here here's a couple of the problems. So in one sense, what's the big deal? You know, we're getting free stuff. Can't we go do something else? And w- w- you you kind of hit the point here. We there's we assume in a dynamic market economy that if something free comes in, then we can use that, that labor and, and move it somewhere else and start a new business. Um, so I'm going to jump ahead and then I'll jump back. And I think the, the thing is we take for granted certain what we call institutions of justice in the film. We take these things for granted that to us are normal. That's like clear title to land, ability to register your business uh, without you know undue burden, um, ability to... Uh, <clears throat> engage in economic activity and, and free exchange and um, enforcement of contracts and all these things. Well, these things actually don't, don't really exist so much in lots of places in the developing world, or at least they're, they're not very strong and effective. Um, so it's not so simple to just kind of start a business. That's one problem. Uh, the other problem is, is that it's erratic, okay? And, and so, so the other, kind of like in the United States and Europe, if free trade, if, I'm sorry, if, if free food is going to come in to our so, you know, the city, I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Free food's going to come in. We're going to, I mean, it's going to be on, you know, the internet and on Twitter, and we're going to know free food's coming in, and somebody's going to be complaining, and other people are going to be happy, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, we have a lot of information to be able to make decisions in markets, right? So we're not perfect information, obviously, but we have information to kind of make decisions and, and change and see what's happening. I mean, this is really a little different in the developing world. I mean, it's erratic. So if, if one of the guys, we talked about Tom's shoes, and one person explains, you know, when, Tom, when the bus arrives, People, you know, they didn't explain what Tom Shoes does. Sure. So Tom Shoes is what's called a social entrepreneurial venture. And uh, Blake Mikowski is the the founder of it. And he, the idea is that if you buy a shoe in the United States, like at a fancy store, there's these kind of like, you've probably seen them around, your listeners have seen them around. There's these kind of Argentine style shoe. If you buy one of those shoes in the developing, I'm sorry, in the developed world, US, Europe, a free shoe, an extra pair of shoes, I should say, a pair of shoes. Yeah, um, gets, yeah, yeah. Not, that it's would not be a that really, cruel. <laughs> yeah. Everybody has one shoe. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not that bad. Uh, every, a pair of shoes gets sent down to the developing world for some, for like a child who needs shoes. All right. Sounds great. And so, um, and so when the shoes come in, all right, does that put out of business local cobblers? And the answer, I mean, go to this question. It's like, well, who cares? I mean, that's good. Then they can use those, reallocate their resources. Right, and um, parents who couldn't afford a second pair or even a, maybe a, a first right. pair will have a pair for their kids. It's great. Yeah, so there's, there's a couple of problems with that. I don't, I don't know if you want to go into that now, Rex, No, go but, into it now. Okay, well, there's a couple of problems. So one is going back to this, this question. One is it's erratic. You don't know when the bus is coming. So for the cobbler... Uh, he doesn't, he can't simply predict, Hey, guess what? I hear some shoes are coming in, you know, let's make sandals or let's make, uh, you know, know, iPhones or whatever it might be that we're going to make, uh, because we don't need to do this anymore. It's just kind of coming in blind. And so that's the one problem. It's erratic. The second problem is, as I already mentioned, it's not really so easy to shift. And so, and, and the third problem is 
Because it's not, and this, this is where I think it's very important to talk about, because it's not, say, a competitive market economy, and, and I, so I'm repeating what I said earlier, the intention of the social entrepreneur, the intention of the NGO or the aid is to actually help those communities, right? Now, there's no doubt that some people get a benefit, but this is exactly like we're talking about the tariffs or, you know, or, or, or crony capitalism. Some people get benefits, but the overall kind of economy doesn't grow. And so if the intention is to actually help the economy, then the measurement by which we look at, okay, are you doing good, has to be measured. So that's the, so that's the kind of the big picture. Now, on the Tom Shoes, there's really two critiques, two or three critiques of, of, of Tom Shoes that we heard. One is the very same one we're talking about now, right? When you give shoes into a community, you're, you're actually helping some people, but you're hurting the local a cobbler and the local economy and, and, and some different, you know, people who then go out of business. Right. So in the, and then those shoes aren't, those shoes maybe won't come to that community again for another year, et cetera. So and when you talk about sustainability and kind of self termination, a lot of those things get broken by free things. So that's, that's the first. Um, the second, of course, some people complain about the quality of the shoes, but I don't, I don't think that's super important. I mean, I think it's a little bit important, but I don't think it's the main thing. But the third thing we heard that was kind of a surprising point in the film. And so I asked this man named Daniel Jean-Louis about Tom's. And he was very critical about the, how they come in and harm local businesses. He was also critical that because they're NGOs or social entrepreneurs, they're actually giving away free goods. Not only are they undermining businesses, but they're not paying taxes. And so they're, it's, it's all part of what one of the guys explains, cutting the link between the government and the people. All right, we can talk about that in more detail. But they're yeah. not paying taxes, so they're not, they're not contributing. This is the other. But the biggest critique he had, which I thought was really interesting, is so I gave him this iPad, and I said, Daniel, what do you think about this, this, um, uh, this, vi- this commercial? And the commercial said, you know, we want to be a for-profit business, that's Tom Shoes, so that we could be sustainable, and provide shoes for children for the rest of their lives. So what do you think about this? And now I had spoken to Daniel. I knew what his, he, you know, he, he, he's actually a pretty much of a free market guy, and he was going to be critical of some of the, you know, basically distortion of the market, et cetera. But he, he said, there's no words to describe this. He said, saying that you want to provide children for shoes for the rest of their lives is implying that you don't want them to have shoes so that you can provide them. He said, no one wants to be a beggar for life. And this actually struck me really powerfully because I was expecting kind of the economic response. But he gave us a a much more anthropological response. Like, look, your short-term help is is like a small Band-Aid on a larger problem. But if it were just a Band-Aid, that would be fine, but it actually creates to perpetuating the problem of joblessness, of inability to build markets, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and it creates a poor image. Yeah, so that, think, that was his reaction. I think it's more of a, <clears throat> his criticism, I think, is a sociological critique or philosophical critique. Right. It makes sense in that the idea that somehow there will never be a, a child in the developing world who won't need our shoes is, is a tragic thought. And it it does encourage us and them to think of a dependent relationship rather than a, a more uh, cooperative relationship. So that part I agree with. I think on the on the economic side, 
I have trouble with the argument again because mm-hmm. it's a little too much like the buy local argument, the idea right. that somehow they've got to buy their own local shoes. It would be great if they could get their shoes, if they could buy their shoes outside. And if really, if people dump free shoes for the rest of eternity into into Haiti and the poorest countries of the world, it wouldn't, I don't think that'd be a right. tragedy per se. Mm-hmm. I think the erratic part I, I think it's the erratic part, but not quite what you emphasize. You emphasize that it sort of comes out of the blue. Well, a lot of innovations come out of the blue, and we expect entrepreneurs to deal with the creative destruction, and some of them can't. That's life uh, that follows inevitably. Yeah. But right. it's more like, oh, here's a here's a truckload now, and we don't know when the next one's coming because they're not here to make a living. They're here to be helpful, and they're not going to be reliably helpful. They have, their stake is, is smaller. Right. I, I think that combined with the... Lack of dynamism of the market is is got to be where the damage comes. At least that's that's my thought. You know, I think I think that's basically. I mean, I think that's basically right. I mean, that's like, but it also it, it's kind of going back to this underlying assumptions, like the dynamism of the market, and and this when you have creative destruction and you have a, a new innovation that puts people out of business. I mean, that's great. So, like, you know, oftentimes you'll hear people say, you know, like, we need to defend business. Well, I think business is great. I've written about business as a moral enterprise. I think it's valuable, but I don't really care about business. Right. I care about a free <laughs> yeah. and competitive market economy right. Correct. that gives people opportunity. If you go out of business, good. That means that you're not serving other people. I'm glad you went out of business. And I don't mean, that doesn't mean I don't have care or concern for, for the people who lose their jobs. The transition, yeah, of course. It's difficult. I mean, you and, shouldn't and get are, a voice to preserve your particular style of, of yeah. manufacturing or whatever it is. This, at however, the expense of others. Yeah, at right? the expense of others. So, so, but this, so this is, so there's a lot of things going on here. And it's kind of interesting because when I talk to people who are, are, are supporters of kind of a free economy, they always bring this point up, like, isn't it good? And in one sense, like, yeah, it's good to get free things. But, but I think you've hit it. One is the erratic. It's, it's, it's not, it's, there's no, because there's not a market, there's, there's no connection to living. It's not reliable. So you can't really make decisions there. Um, but, and then the other problem is this. It's that... <clears throat> We're like, if it were a free and competitive economy, if these poor people were not fundamentally excluded from what I call the institutions of justice, if they were actually able to have a dynamic economy, this wouldn't matter very much, right? It wouldn't. And so I I don't, so, so this is why actually I think maybe to shift the discussion a bit, I think that, you know, there's a problem with foreign aid, there's a problem with NGOs, there's a problem with charity um, of different types. Um, and social entrepreneurship. But the biggest problem is that we're not focusing on the core questions. And, and this is where the kind of perpetuation of the industry theme comes through. Well, what are the core questions? What do people need to be able to create prosperity in their own families and their own communities? Right? And this is, this is complex. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not. But there are certain key things. One of them is clear title to your land. And we talked about this in, the, in one of the, the sections called Excluded um, clear title to your land. In some places, 50, 60% of the land has no title. If you don't know who owns the land, then you have no incentive to, to, to start a business because it can be taken away from you. And it can be taken away from you, especially if you're a widow or an orphan. So if you're poor, you're in a dangerous spot. That's number one. Number two, access to justice in the courts. I think it was the Center for Research of Justice, I forget the name, in India, did a study. And they said on average, it takes 20 years to get your court case heard. Okay, and mm-hmm. it costs a lot of money. So if you're poor, you're completely excluded. 
The second part of the justice uh, that we address in the film is just the ability to register a business. And so I think, you know, many of your listeners probably know the work of Hernando de Soto. But de Soto decided to test, like, okay, I can set up a business because, you know, I, I, have, I can get a driver to get a lawyer to take me around, right? So I, I, my, I lived in Nicaragua for three years. And you see this all the time, right? I mean, you see, if you're wealthy and connected, you can get a lot of things done. Um, he said, but let's see what happens if you're poor. So DeSoto set up a little sewing machine shop about five kilometers outside of, of Lima. And he got four student lawyers to go around and follow all the rules and regulations in order to start up a business. And so they, and, and they couldn't take, you know, white, air-conditioned Toyota Land Cruisers, right? They had to take the buses and they had to go do all the things and get all the paperwork done. And it took them 289 days, eight hours a day, 289 days to get their business registered. That's 289 days of not being able to work, right? Because they're spending their time doing this. And so what, what he said is that the legal system is simply unfriendly to poor people. And this, so, so if you don't have private property, if you don't have access to justice in the courts, if you don't have the ability to exchange, if you have to sell your, your goods to a government board instead of onto the market, and then you're going in to compete in the global um, agricultural market against the United States and Europe that have high tariffs. While they're tweaking tariffs and dumping free stuff or, or basically dumping subsidized stuff, it's, it's a lot harder to respond to these erratic, big um, influxes of food. And so I, think, so I think that the bigger question is not like, okay, does free stuff hurt? But, but again, shifting the discussion to how these people – like why do they need foreign aid in the first place? So I, you know, I totally agree with that obviously and I think um – it's interesting to me, Hernando de Soto was an international phenomenon uh, and got a lot of attention and his work got a lot of attention. And what you just gave a perfect example of the kind of insight. I mean, that's an incredible discovery, right? That the world works really poorly for poor people and it's probably for some rich people too in those countries. Uh -huh. and, and, and that there's a lot of barriers to, um, to innovation and to small enterprise, small business. The question is, why hasn't – I don't think we've made a lot of progress in – we use the wrong pronoun. I don't think the countries that have those problems have done much right. about it. I don't hear anything about it. So I'm just going to raise a question. Uh, celebrities take a, a beating in your film, uh, which I kind a of – gentle, yeah, A gentle. A gentle beating. Yes, correct, uh, <laughs> which I enjoyed, I have to confess. Um, but what – you know, a thought experiment, what would happen – I'm thinking of – Paul Romer's uh, perhaps quixotic attempt to create a charter city, a city that has a certain set of governance rules that might be more conducive to enterprise and prospering and flourishing in human creativity. What if, we t what if those celebrities said, we're going to pick one country and we're going to try to find a way to put pressure on the government? We're not going to put pressure on people to give money. We're not going to put pressure on uh, governments to give more foreign aid. We're going to put pressure on a particular poor country's government to lighten the red tape burden. Now, part of the challenge is it's hard to write a song about it. So it's a big... <laughs> I've tried. I have really tried. It's a big Honestly, problem like, no. to get people emotionally attached to this idea. But you'd think <laughs> if we could motivate people at, at the um, celebrity level to, to deal with this very small but perhaps crucial thing, we could create a little natural experiment where a country could actually perhaps make it, there could be some kind of difference that'd be observable. Because right now, I think mostly was when you t when you give the DeSoto evidence, like 289 days, 
and, you, and we all nod, you know, we shake our heads, right. we don't nod, we go, oh, it's horrible. It's like, now what? Right. Not, not much has happened from that. Do you, do you, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, that, that's the big, that's the big question, right? I mean, that when, that's what happens. Okay. Now what do we do? And, and I think some people are trying to do work on, you know, land titling uh, besides DeSoto and the, like in addition to DeSoto doing, doing land titling and working on, on justice uh, questions like access to justice and things like that. You know, I mean, I don't know. I, it's a, a little so a little wary of the kind of social engineering aspect of getting yeah, celebrities to kind of sure. try to do that. But but it's as better as than what they're doing here, now. Right? Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I'm I'm hoping Bono comes out with a song about private property soon. Uh, but you know, I think I think that's I think that's a real question. I mean, so there, there's a lot of things going on on here that are are difficult, right? So first of all, you know, the typical way we think about foreign aid. So let me, let me take for a second. See what, sorry, the simple way we think about poverty is we, we kind of think there's maybe six or seven solutions, right? The first idea is like, if we could just give more stuff, okay? And that's not just foreign aid, as we've talked about. I mean, you know, I've heard many religious leaders say things like, you know, if North American Christians could just get together and be more generous, we could raise $84 billion and eradicate extreme poverty forever. And the answer is, no, we couldn't. Yeah, it's old, yeah. Because poor people are not poor because they lack stuff. Poor people are poor because they lack these institutions of justice we talk about, right? Um, the other thing you hear is, you know, oh, we need infrastructure, education, and, and healthcare. And all those things are very good, right? Um, but they actually are really, they be, they're a result of wealth before they become the cause of it. I mean, you don't see life expectancy shooting up really high until you get to a certain point. And, and you know, the, so, so the other, so the, so the real question is how do you get the institution of justice? And I think like you had, um, I think it was Darren Osimoglu on your, on your program a while back. And he, you know, part of the Osimoglu and Robinson, they, I think their critique of, of po- like policy as the solution, like the ignorant kind of critique they make, right. That it's just, if we just put the right policies in, it'll work. Um, I think they're right. I think this is the one of the dangers to the thought experiment, right? When we say, put pressure on governments, we tend to say, you know, let's privatize or let's create a market or let's create this thing or that thing. But if you don't have the underlying kind of structures and institutions of justice, if, if there's not, if there's not say fairness and uh, you, another to your listeners out there, trust, right. Julia, you had this, I think it was wine guest. Is that right? And mm-hmm. Stanford talks yeah. about what law is. Okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, this is actually quite, a, it was really interesting as I listened to it. I said, wow, that's Thomas Aquinas, question 94 in the Summa Theologica. That's what I thought. So um, these aren't new I'm things. sure you were joined by thousands of listeners <laughs> who had the same spontaneous thought. Uh, Twitter blew up. From yeah, that. no, I uh, noticed. No, but, what, what, is, uh, what does Aquinas say and why is it related? Oh, so, well, Aquinas just talks about in law that, you know, it needs to be promulgated. Uh, it needs to be generally unif- to use some of the language. It needs to be promulgated. Means you have to know what it is beforehand. It can't be retroactive. It needs to be universal. It has to apply to everyone, right? Um, and it has to it has to be in accord with reason, right, et cetera. So you can't you can't it couldn't be some like radical like yeah, how could I possibly discern this? Um, and then of course there's other philosophical and theological questions that he has, right? So he says that positive law or human law needs to be. Um, in line with with the natural law, and the natural law is the natural law is the cognitive access of the mind to the to the eternal law. And so, but the natural law basically means that some things are are morally evil, and 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 some things are 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 good, and that an un, and that there is justice in the world. And, you know, there's certain kind of justice that an unjust law is in fact no law at all. I mean, there's, these are these are really complex. I mean, volumes, hundreds of volumes have been written on question ninety four. 
but but um, if Aquinas were alive, I'd have him on, and, and we'd 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 knock it out in an hour. But yeah, yeah, sorry, exactly. So, <laughs> so I mean, but let's see. So Aquinas actually, Aquinas is kind of interesting because Aquinas text talks about private property as well, right? I mean, he takes private property very seriously, and in following Aristotle and following Hebrew Bible, right? I mean, the, these ideas of the importance of property for social cohesion are not new. So the question is, why do they arise in some places and not arise in others? And then are there ways to kind of create incentives for them? And here's, here's like, so I, I, I thought the, the book, Why Nations Fail, was really good. And, very, and they talked about institutions and the work of Douglas North. That's and, S.M. Oakland Robinson. Robinson, right. And, but one thing I, I thought that was a little bit problematic is I thought they had kind of a limited view of culture. You know, and, and I would need to go back and read it again more well, carefully. they're economists. So. Yeah, there you go. There you Serious. Go. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. I should have just, that's self, yeah. I wish, I wish it were a joke. It's not, it's just, you know. So they, they have this limited view of culture as if somehow these political and economic institutions are disconnected. They don't emerge out of culture, but but they do emerge out of culture. And, you know, so the, the really like whatever the you know, $5 million, whatever the $64,000 question is, how is it if we know what these, what are the certain political and economic institutions that enable prosperity, what is it, how do we, how do we create the incentives uh, and the encouragement for those to be built? And, and I, I think that's a really complex answer. Yeah, I think that, that is the $64,000 question. We don't have an answer to it. If we yeah. did, we'd be using it, right. or at least we'd be trying to use it. And I think, I don't think we have, as you point out, I think the problem here is partly that the cultural interactions are too complicated and we don't have the levers that we, that are obvious what the, that would right. incentivize people to do the right thing. Yeah. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago with Pete Batke talking about the aftermath of Katrina here in the United States, a developed country and the development. You know, People are, have recently written about the five-year aftermath of the Haitian earthquake and it's mediocre. It's depressing. It's not, it wasn't very successful. And the aftermath of Katrina is not so successful. And I think those are two parts of the world that have something in common, which are that some of the glue that holds other places together for some reason isn't there, and we don't know how to get it there. So it's just, uh, yeah. you know, it's an interaction, as Pete describes it, as the three-legged stool, the interaction between government, biz, private and, private enterprise, government, and culture, and uh, we don't have a good model. There's right. no, you know, there's X1, X2, and X3, and that doesn't get you very far. <laughs> well, yeah, I think I think there are like two questions one smaller than one is more directed to this conversation in the film so the big i mean the bigger question i think is that you know when you look at the developing world if you say okay we know what institutions are needed and i think so austin mogland robinson make this point like it's not just you can't just privatize you need you need political economy right, right. Um, and i think that's right but the question is if you're in the top level right if you're if you're one of the oligarchs in, you know, Latin America, Africa, whatever, somewhere. You don't, there's no economic incentive whatsoever for you to help create the institutions of justice. Right? You don't need them. That's one. Number two, even if you're in the upper middle class, right? You know, so I lived in Nicaragua. I, I, I taught there. But, you know, we had a driver and a maid. And, and Theodore Dalrymple says beautifully in the film, you know, what is, Schumpeter says, a maid is worth a household worth of appliances. Right? Right. And lovely. So if, it's lovely. Yeah, yeah it it's great. I mean, I had a driver, a maid. It was fantastic, you know. And, um, and you know, uh, I wish we had one now. It would be great. But, if, but think about it. In the United States and Europe, where you have developed dynamic economies, you have to be pretty wealthy to get a maid. Yep. And so, so even the upper middle class and the middle class, they don't really have an incentive 
to kind of create this inclusive economy of justice. So there's so really in one sense, well, I'd say they helpful. have a disincentive because the right. system's working pretty well. It might be better, right? And you might have some compassion for the for your maid who would who would maybe have a better, richer life if things change, but then maybe you wouldn't have a maid. And so it's right. kind of hard to be a big cheerleader for getting losing right. your maid. Well, <laughs> and it also gives you the great opportunity. I couldn't agree more. And abs- and the other thing is it gives you, you know, it gives you something to kind of lament about, right? And I mean, you know, people like something to lament about. Like, oh, wouldn't it be great if things were better? Well, you don't actually have to do anything. You just can kind of do a little bit here and there, but it's not going to have any impact on, on your life. So, so you have this incentive problem. So I think that underlying, and this is very complex, but I think underlying the institutions of justice is a certain kind of cultural and moral framework. And, and this cultural and moral frame, framework uh, is, is ancient. It appeared over time and developed in a very complex and you know, up and down manner. It wasn't linear manner, um, over time in certain places. And one of the problems with modern economics is that we've split moral philosophy and, and economics. And so like Adam Smith, I know, of course, you have that lovely book on, on Smith. Uh, Smith didn't do this. He saw economics connected into, into moral philosophy. And, uh, but this is this is a problem because well, he kind of did. Yeah, he did kinda. keep it. He, put, he yeah. kept it separate. His right. his two books. But I take the point. Go ahead. Right. Yeah, I mean exactly. Um, uh, for Smith, you can you just, we can read your book and not talk to me. So I'm not a Smith expert. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but but generally speaking, it wasn't like somehow coming. And, and I think that we that that these are the, this makes this makes economic development even more complex. So that so that's one thing. And so let's just put that to the side for now and say there is one thing. However, I think we can do. And that is, uh, if celebrities, I don't know if they should do this thought experiment. I would like, I'd love to see celebrities talking about property and justice in the courts and ability to register a business. I think that they should talk about. I think it would be great to get Bono to start talking about these things. And I think it could have absolute impact. So if Russ, if you and I, we can get Bono together, we're going to okay. we'll help. Them we got a new cause for him. We okay. gotta, we'll, you're, you're a rapper, so yep. we, can, we can do it. Okay. Yeah, definitely. So, I'll throw on my, my tremendous yeah. musical roots. <laughs> Um, but the other thing is that I, just to say is that that part of the problem is that the poverty industry, as it is now operating, creates the incentive for governments in the developing world precisely not to build these institutions of justice because we are doing all these things that that end up no you, the governments don't need a, a a vibrant tax base and a dynamic economy to be able to stay in place, and so. What's happened is we use this kind of sentimental, this goes back to our earlier in our conversation, the sentimental language like, oh, the poor, we have to help them. The poor, the poor, we have to help them. Um, and so we use emergency models for 70 years to create precisely the incentives that are needed for governments not to build inclusive institutions. And so there, it, we may not be able to solve the deepest, deeper problems, and those are going to, they're, they're not easy to solve, and they didn't, they weren't solved in, in, in Europe and the United States very quickly, but we can at least change the direction of the poverty industry. And here's where celebrities also have a lot to say. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think that's the most important point. We may not know how to fix it, but we certainly know how to make it worse. So we should stop doing those things that we're right. doing that, that, right. that make it worse. Now, you, you raised this issue of moral philosophy, and I want to, it lets me segue to something I want to talk about, which is there's an increasing interest, and we had Chris Blattman on talking about it um, a while back a year or so ago, an increasing interest in cash transfers. So one of the critiques of the aid movement is it's 
it's project oriented. We bring rice or we build a dam or uh, we build some kind of um, infrastructure project like a dam. And, and that's not necessarily what they want, but that's what our contractors want to push for. And so mm-hmm. there's this terrible uh, bootlegger and Baptist uh, thing going on. And that's uh, part of that's part of the problem. So what we need to do is just give people money because when you give them money, not a lot necessarily, but give them money, and that helps them get through the worst of things. And there's some empirical evidence now that maybe that's an effective way to help. So mm. there's a lot of push for this. What my thought is that I'm open-minded about it. It might might be a good thing, but I do think giving away money has challenges and, and some issues. So I uh, want to hear your thoughts on that. You know, that, that's really interesting to me. I, I don't know so much about it. I, I will look into it. So I don't, I don't, I can't really comment very intelligently on, on that because I just haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it. But, um, but I think that, you know, it's, they're giving away, giving away things, period. There's some challenges to it, right? Because it, ha- it depending on how it's done, it can have, you know, be more positive or more negative. And so how it's done, I think has to be really thought, thought through. And, and maybe, um, I think it's Chris Blattman, you said is doing this. So I, I, um, you know, we, when we look at say, um, microfinance, for example, where money is not being given away, it's actually being lent. Microfinance can be very positive or negative. And one of the ways it's positive is when it become when the money is, is lent for economically productive activity versus when the money is lent simply for consumption because then that credit card consumer debt. However, this may not, I mean, I don't, I haven't thought this through. This may not be, um, this may not apply to, to just pure cash transfers. Um, what do you think? Well, I, what I was hoping you'd talk about, and you don't have to, but I, I was hoping you'd talk about is, is the, this idea that uh, that work is good. Uh, that oh I think yeah, of, I think sure. of I think of um, sure Gerard Manley Hopkins. Uh, he says uh, he says this is my work for that I came, and this mm-hmm. ties into a lot of As our kingfishers catch fire, correct? Dragonflies draw flame, exactly. Yeah. And I and I think when we talk about this this uh, either uh, dystopian or utopian future where robots are going to do everything for us, which I think is, a, is silly. I don't think that world's going to be. But but if you worry about it, one of the things we've talked about here is that some of the meaning that people get from, from work is maybe sure. will be more challenging. And I don't know. I, it strikes me that there's something, the word that comes to mind is thin. There's something thin yeah. about thinking that what people need most is is stuff. Now, right. of course they do if they're, near starvation of course they do if you know money money is incredibly important when you're near when you're near poverty or 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 desperately poor so in that case maybe it is the right thing but at the same time uh depending on other people for your for as a as a solution not as a not as a stopgap not as an emergency strikes me as a bad model and it seems Mm -hmm. to be the model that the united states is heading toward um yeah in turn for us and you know, we have falling labor force participation. We have more and more people on disability, uh, and we're we seem a lot of people are okay with it. And it's yeah. uh, I don't think that's a very healthy thing. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe no, I'm old fashioned. No, I actually think okay, yeah. I didn't. I don't really know about the the, the economics, so I'm, I'm I'm a little bit reticent to talk about that. But I do think yeah. I think in the question that you bring up in the dignity of work, I mean, this is very very important. I mean, I think that work is not. I mean, your work is clearly you know, a utility. I mean, you're doing something, right? But a business um, is, and when people engage in work, I mean, there's a community of persons getting together to take care of their own needs, 
right? And then providing goods and services to meet the needs of others. And there's a whole, like, there's just layers of the importance of what work does. Work does for the, the common good, what business does for the common good, and then what work does for the individual. I mean, you know, um, what do you see when you see a guy who's kind of, you know, drifting, he doesn't know what to do with himself, he's, you know, a 20-year-old, not sure, like, what do you, well, you, the guy needs a job. Why do you say the guy needs a job? Right? Why do you see the 20-year-old college student who's just kind of wasting his time? Why does he need a job? Because a job actually gives, um, gives this kind of, it empowers the person. It, it requires the person to do certain things, to, to, to flourish as a human being. Um, and, and so there's a whole concept of the dignity of work. I mean, we're talking about Aquinas. If, if you want to look at you know, what, work, what work does, you know, so in, in a Christian understanding, a Jewish understanding of work, work comes before the fall, right? Work is not a punishment for sin. Work comes before the fall. And the person is, is Adam is, is given the responsibility to take care of the garden and really to complete creation, right? There's this kind of deep dignity of work. And then further from that, you have what um, some philosophers talk about, the intransitive and the transitive dimension. So the transitive dimension of work is that you're making something or producing some value or you're serving other people. But the work also has an intransitive dimension that it's actually shaping you. And um, this is, I think, this, under, this underlying problem, part of the underlying problem with the, with the, um, the humanitarian model, right, is that humanitarianism is really a hollowed out type of love, of charity, right? And so let's, let's look, if you look, and I won't go into the de- details of this, but humanitarianism is a type of kind of secular Christian love, right? So that, you know, medieval kind of, we don't want that. Let's, let's not have all the kind of the religious attachments. Let's just have, let's make it about you know, caring for people. And, um, and so I think there's, you know, I understand why, but let's actually go to the, look at it a little carefully. The word charity comes, as you, you and your listeners know, come from the Latin word caritas. Caritas is love. And what is love? Love is to seek the good of the other, right? It is the intensio benevolentia. That is, that is the intentional like, desire for the benevolence of the other person. And so when you, which, which means you want to help promote human flourishing. And, and that means you want to engage in the person in a way that helps them flourish as a human being and not simply just ha- be able to buy stuff and comfort themselves with entertainment and food because that's not a rich human life. And so, so this, I think, is the really this kind of problem with humanitarianism is that it doesn't think sufficiently about human flourishing, about, about treating a person like they're not simply an object. And so to use kind of a Nietzschean language, humanitarianism has this limited horizons it stops before it reaches the spiritual capacity of the person. It's, it transvalues and it makes comfort and, um, you know, maybe the basic needs, it makes that the highest value instead well, of recognizing that as something that is helpful and essential for a greater kind of human experience as a person. I think it comes back to what you said before. I don't think there's any... Uh, doubt that a humanitarian urge to help a person who is drowning uh, or starving is you should treat them like an object you, know, Absolutely. you, should, you should you should grab them <laughs> grab their arm and pull them out of the out of the water and you should throw food at them and and let them figure out what to do i think the biggest challenge of the 
longer term, more extended model is first it, it hits the knowledge problem, which is that I don't know what that other person needs. And I think that's at the heart right. of part of your critique in this film. And it's the heart of what Angus Deaton was trying to say in that comment. I think I'll think I know where he said it. I'm going to put a link up to it. Um, and it, it, it comes also comes back to if I can come back to Smith for a minute, it comes back to this idea that if you want to trade with somebody, you have to figure out what they want. Uh, mm-hmm. You have to extend yourself. You can't just say, well, here, this is good enough for you because I like it. You can't say, I figured you'd like this. You have to get them to choose what you've provided. So you have to put yourself in their shoes. You have to uh, love them in some dimension. And I think that's the cultural virtue behind uh, free markets when the when it works right. Um, we're, we're low on time. I, I'd hate I, – I want to – we have a lot of things I want to ask you about Um not that this wasn't inter- the last part wasn't interesting, but I say say two minutes on the apparent project, which was an incredible twenty right. minutes, fifteen minutes or so in the middle of this film, uh, and this uh, the way that orphanages are run in in some poor parts of the world, which is shocking. Right. So um, the apparent project. We told the story in the film of of a couple named Shelley and Corrigan Clay, uh, who were Americans, uh, Christian kind of missionary. Uh, And they went down to Haiti to adopt a child. Um, And they had actually gone down to start an orphanage. Uh, Corrigan had about $30,000 from savings and some money he inherited. And they were going to go down and start an orphanage. So they went down, they worked in an orphanage for about a year. And they were going to adopt this Haitian child. And the orphanage director said, would you like to meet the mother? And they were a little bit taken aback, right? Like, oh, I thought they didn't have parents, but okay. Is, is Is she fine with that? And the director said, oh, yeah, she's fine. You know, she comes, you know, every couple of weeks and brings him things and talks to him. So she, they saw the mother coming to see the child. And then they met her. And she said, you know, it was very obvious that, that the mother loved this child. And they said, well, why are you giving her up for adoption? You know, you could see that they loved the mother. And she said, well, I just can't afford the child. And Shelley said, you know, it was this shock. I mean, here I am spending $20,000 on an adoption for a child that the mother wants. Well, they began to look around and they discovered that in their, in their orphanage, I think it was like 22 out of the 26 children uh, actually had at least one living parent. And that generally speaking, and this is conservative and, and there's been some, you know, rep- uh, Haitian government reports. It's in the New York times and other places about 80% of orphans in Haiti have at least one living parent. And so what happened is, is that the, these guys, I mean, so these, they're, they're evangelical missionaries, right? And so in the, in the letter of James, uh, in the, in the, in the uh, New Testament, Christian Bible says, pure religion is this to care for the widow and the orphan in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's what it says. Pure religion to care for the widow and the orphan. So they're going out and kind of we're going to care for the widow and the orphan. And what they discovered is that a lot of the care for the widow and the orphan, especially the orphan in this case, actually was creating incentives for parents to give their children away. So it was creating economic incentives. Now, I want to say something about the film too. And you you probably noticed this, Russ, but like we did not take abuse of a good thing and tell the story of that in the film. So like, you know, foreign aid was given to, to for rice, but actually it bought, you know, weapons that killed the population. No, we didn't do that. Um, we didn't take, you know, at, at Haiti, there was a part there in different places. Sometimes children in orphanages are trafficked, right? 
And we didn't, we didn't talk about that on purpose because what we were trying to show is not the corruption of the good thing, but actually- Even at its highest pe- level, it's right. not very good. Yeah. Right, that, that good people trying to do something, we actually, if we're not paying attention to like, you know, to anthropology, like philosophical anthropology, how human beings operate, and then incentives, economics, what we end up doing is we create incentives to actually create harm. And so, so 80% of the orphans- don't don't have parents, and other people comment on this. No, you do have parents. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, thank you. Eighty percent of the orphans do have parents, and they've given them away as really economic relinquishments. Well, what they realize is, well, this is a disaster, and so they began to think like, why are we focused on children? What if instead of focusing on the children, we created jobs uh, to allow parents? And so they were artsy types, and so they said, okay, let's do something that we can do, and so. Instead of building an orphanage and raising money, they started a business doing like necklaces and things. And they now hire, have about 220 people who work for them. Um, the, Shelley estimates, Shelley Clay estimates they're caring for about 720 children plus. And not with any money, but only with actually selling goods and services. And Corrigan said, you know, we went down there with $30,000. He said, we now make that much plus a month for our, for our workers. And so what's actually happened is really people's lives are transformed. And, you know, we tell the story of this one woman, particularly uh, in the film, her name is McElaine, and she was about to give her children away for adoption. And Shelly met her and Shelly said, she kind of said, I'll take a risk and said, you know, would you like a job? And, um, and by the way, Shelly and Corrigan, you know, they, they will fire you if you don't produce. It's a business. They, they, it's not a charity. But they, they do, but they do raise money. I went, they have a web, they're, they're, yeah. so it's a little bit. It's a mix. It's yeah, a little bit exactly. more complicated. Right. It is more, no, absolutely. It is more complicated because they have kind of an NGO part and they have exactly. So it is, but, but, but their, but their thinking was if we can actually create, um, if we can actually create um, jobs, then we don't have to worry about the orphan problem. Now on the raise money and, and some of this they've kind of developed because I know the thing is growing very much. It's always kind of interesting to me. I mean, I'm not opposed to raising money, and I'm not. And I, I have to go look more deeply at, at how what they're doing. But, but yeah, it's I always, give a lot of money to charity. I don't. Th- I think it's a good yeah, thing. I don't. Yeah, I, so none no, of this I, is critical about giving away giving away your money or having people use money wisely. Right. I should I should give more to charity. I I, I totally think charity is a good thing. I think it's very important. Um. But I, but it's but I think that what what's happening is that they realized. Look. We're, the biggest problem is not that, that there are orphans, it's that there are parents who don't have the means to take care of those orphans. And Corrigan says something really powerful. He said, if you had, a ch- if you had no job and you had children and you couldn't take care of your children, and someone said, hey, I got an idea. I'll take your children. I'll take care of them. Everything will be fine. What would you want? He said, they said, no, I don't need that. I just need a job. Yeah. And I think, and this is, and it's, so it's almost, it's almost funny. Like we go to this, this is what I was going to say about the raising money. We go to these incredibly creative schemes to raise money to poor, help poor people. It's like Americans are, you know, I go to Europe sometimes and I have a little fun with the Europeans. I'm like, don't worry. It's okay. I'm American. I'll solve your problem. Right. <laughs> and they're like, we knew you guys thought like that. Okay. It's like everything they expected that. But, but in one sense, you know, Americans are problem solvers, right? We're, we're entrepreneurs. We go out and we do these things. Once we walk into the developing world, we enter into this kind of boring box of humanitarianism and we don't really apply all of our entrepreneurial skills to helping create jobs and solving the problems of institutions of justice. Instead, we apply our creativity to figure out how we can raise money to create another project. And it's not, it's not wrong. I'm not saying that, but I think it's, it's deeply unfortunate. So we're almost out of time. We're out of time, but we're going to go a little bit over. 
Talk about uh, just a couple of quick things about the film itself. How long did you work on it? Uh, what kind of reaction is it getting? And um, how can people see it? Okay. So the film, it probably, it's probably two, two to two, throughout three years, I would say, the whole thing took. You know, we, we actually did some filming before that. We started doing some filming for another project. I directed a DVD series called um, the Poverty Cure DVD series. Which So we have some, some of, there's a little bit of overlap in those two things. So because we had done, we had done that. Um, it's a little bit longer, but the film probably like two, two and a half years to really to make the film. It's, it's definitely complex. Um, but we, we started showing it last year. We showed it at a couple of film festivals. We, we showed it at a libertarian film festival and we were um, very delighted. We won actually three awards, including best film. Uh, but we were also a little disappointed because we did not want to make a political film. And I thought, okay, great. You know, we, all this work, it's going to be, uh, limited to the libertarian or kind of conservative groups. And, uh, the ne- about 10 days later, we won best documentary at a, um, a very progressive, uh, film festival. Uh, so that was really encouraging. Uh, I, I texted our, our director of photography and both of us were just very excited to, to that we, we had hoped to make this film that way. So, but, um, and then we got some good feedback and talked to a lot of filmmakers and they said to us, it was 94 minutes. They said, you need to cut three minutes out. <laughs> <laughs> and about three or four minutes, you need to cut three minutes. Don't worry about five or six, just three minutes. So anyway, so then we, we went back to the, so that, that part extended it. That's why it's a little longer. We went back and we, 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 we fixed it. We worked on it. We, we fixed the opening scenes. We, we got a lot of filmmakers who were generous with their time to give us feedback. Um, and so uh, up to this point now, so then we, then we finished. It's all been color corrected and everything. Uh, we've played in over 40 film festivals. Um, next month, we got accepted to a film festival called IDFA, which if you're kind of a documentary geek, uh, is, one, is the largest film festival in the world. It's very prestigious in Amsterdam. Um, we've won a good number of awards. We've been really delighted with the response. Um, again, from all areas of the political spectrum, we've played, we're playing in universities as well. Uh, so we are distributors. We have distributors, uh, called Roco Films, who's doing our educational distribution and international. And then we're partnering with a group called Tug to do community screenings. We actually have in like this, in a 10 day period that we're in the middle of, we have, we're playing in 16 different cities. So, uh, uh, I was just in San Francisco and we played in, uh, on, on Sunday, uh, we're in Lancaster in Pennsylvania last night. We were in Washington, D.C. with uh, Global Health Corps uh, on Friday. So we're playing uh, in a lot of different places. We, I think last week was our sixth screening at Harvard. We played at Harvard Law School. Uh, we, we've had, we had a sold-out show of like over 350 people for the Harvard Business School. So that's been really interesting as far as reception. And a lot of that is actually student-led. Um, and especially in places like Harvard and Cornell, where there is a lot of international development work going on. Sure. Uh, we've played numerous times at both of those places, mostly led by students. And, um, and a lot of uh, by African business uh, forums and African business groups. And uh, it's been great. I mean, you know, some people don't like the film, of course. And, and, uh, but generally speaking, the reaction, we've been delighted. And if, if uh, we've been really happy. And it also, it's very interesting to see the different reactions, right? Like how an American group will react to Theodore Dalrymple when he says, I bought my first home on the proceeds of aid. Aid's been very good to me. Everybody's kind of anxious in their seats. When I, we show that to African groups, they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, mm-hmm. that's, been, that's been fun to see different things. But so, they, so we've been really happy. We, like I said, played in a lot of film festivals and, and, and a lot of universities. And we're really just kind of getting started for that. So if people are interested in start hosting a screening, they can go to povertyinc.org. And there's a screening page. And we have um, educational licenses that can be bought or community screenings that can be done through what's called the crowdsourcing model. 
um, or community screenings where like an organization just buy a license and then invite people uh, to come either to a theater or to, um, to uh, you know, their, their offices or whatever it might be. Will there be a point in the future there where you can just watch it on the web or, or yes. on Netflix yeah. so, or DVD? Mm-hmm. Or- so we also have another distributor called Brainstorm Media out of California, and they are doing our, um, our iTunes. And, and we, may do a, we may do a very br- a small kind of theatrical release in New York and Los Angeles. And then we're lo- it looks like we're going to iTunes probably February or March. But, but I would say, you know, if, if, especially for those listeners who are professors or students, um, it's really great to watch the film with other people and have conversation. And there are times, you know, when, when some of the, I or some of the other filmmakers can make it. Um, and so if, they, if they're interested in hosting a screening, it's definitely more fun to watch, in the, you know, a group of 100 and have a discussion afterwards. Uh, but it will be out on iTunes in, um, probably like I said, early spring, February, March. And if people are interested, they can go to povertyinc.org and sign up for uh, occasional um, updates. We're not, we're not big enough to spam, so don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> My guest today has been Michael Matheson-Miller. The film is Poverty, Inc. Michael, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty, For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.